Welcome to our National Lawyers Convention Luncheon. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here today. You, that esteemed group described by the Washington Post, and I want to get this right, as the pinstriped tribe of conservative legal minds called the Federalist Society. Now, why is it every time I quote the Washington Post to you, you laugh? Anyhow, it is my great pleasure to introduce the next panel, the luncheon panel, and its moderator. Internally at the Federalist Society, we've been referring to this panel as the Bunch of Judges panel. (laughs) Of course, we refer to them only very respectfully as a bunch of judges. Now, many of you probably know that we have conference calls in advance of these panels to get everything right and discuss the logistics. And sometimes disagreements can arise. Uh, But I'm happy to report that when I had the call for this uh, panel, there were no disagreements or arguments about the order of the speakers or anything that anyone would propose to say or how long each judge would speak. In fact, the only points of disagreement were how many gavels should be provided (laughs) and how many federal marshals would be on hand. And I'm now beginning to hope this is not becoming the contempt of court introduction. Anyhow, what better topic to discuss here today at our luncheon than judicial independence after the uh, recent Wall Street Journal exchange between U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Circuit Court Judge Bill Pryor? And what better group of panelists could we have assembled to speak about the issue than federal appellate court judges, current and former? These are people that live, eat, drink, and sleep judicial independence on a daily basis. In fact, here at the convention, we have some 20 federal appellate court judges participating, many in today's audience. And when you stop and think about it, 20 judges, that's a fair percentage of our entire active federal appellate bench that we've presented at at this year's convention. And of course, the other night at dinner, we were just a couple votes shy of being able to grant cert. It really is remarkable when I reflect on the personalities and organizations that are represented by the participants in our convention. The 20 federal appellate court judges, the two Supreme Court justices, state judges, law school professors from the very best law schools in the country, Yale, Harvard, Chicago, Northwestern, Georgetown, Northwestern, Berkeley, Duke, Columbia, Northwestern, Pepperdine, and Texas. Well, now, it's true, I did spend some time at Northwestern myself. And we've had three law school deans and public policy officials, including a sitting governor and three state AGs, a couple former U.S. attorneys general, the current and two former U.S. solicitors general, and, of course, the vice president. Roaming the halls and on our stages, we've also had seen quite a few U.S. senators, congressmen, and former congressmen, several cabinet secretaries, the head of domestic policy, journalists and commentators, and importantly, representatives from Human Rights Watch, the ACLU, the Center for American Progress, People for the American Way, and the ABA. (laughs) That that wasn't one of my laugh lines. These last few are, are, they're very welcome to join us here in our discussions, and they really do help underscore the spirit of debate that is so integral to the society. The moderator for our next panel is truly a remarkable, likable man. Judge Judge Dennis Jacobs is the chief judge of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. He's been a judge on that circuit since 1992, leaving a partnership in a major private firm to assume his position on the bench. He's a regular participant in Federalist Society events. I have never seen him perturbed or with anything but a big smile on his face and a ring of laughter nearly always in his voice. Given that demeanor, I'm keenly interested to learn just how deep his concerns about judicial independence could possibly run. We're very pleased to have him with us here today. Please help me join join me in helping. Please join me in welcoming (laughs) Judge Jacobs. Uh, first thing I, I want to say, what a privilege it was for me to be here in the room last night listening to the vice president for 
for me, that was uh, sort of a lucky accident. I, I just saw a very long line outside snaking, and I got on the end of it. And uh, when I got to the front, I thought that I was going to be able to buy a PlayStation. <laughs> but, but I... Uh, but it was, it, the event was much more rewarding uh, even <laughs> than that. <clears throat> As a moderator of a panel on judicial independence, I suppose I should talk up the importance of this topic and justify the time that we will spend exploring it. This discussion will be provocative and absorbing. The subject is important. But the threshold question for me is really whether judicial independence is a great issue in terms of the size of the threat to judges. Is judicial independence so precarious nowadays that it's a legitimate preoccupation? And if it's secure, what fuels this issue as a major controversy? One essential preliminary to the uh, discussion, uh, this topic will be discussed chiefly, though not altogether, uh, in the context of federal judges. The subject sprawls when it's expanded to a situation in which each of the states is uh, in play, and the panelists and your moderator have all been on the federal side, so we'll focus on what we know. As to independence, I suppose I should ask, should I be worried? Under Article Three, I enjoy enormous insulation from reprisal. My salary is secure, and if I'm impeached, I won't make less than I do now. <laughs> I, hold, I hold a position of distinction and moderate power, recently diminished by my becoming chief judge. <laughs> and if I am so inclined, I can arrange to be lionized. Federal judges who focus on criticism or threats of impeachment may be susceptible to being characterized, possibly mischaracterized as a bit overwrought. On the other hand, there are assaults on judicial independence that need to be decried. But when one talks about independence, it's important to ask, independence from what? From Congress, the executive, from critics, from humiliation, from gross disrespect, from threats of impeachment? from imputations of partisanship, and independence to do what? Presumably, our jobs. Finally, as we talk about this subject, we should not forget that the empowerment of judges is at the same time an empowerment of the legal profession and the legal community. The bar has its own interests, and it would be naive to think that the bar is the only major player in our economy that is not self-interested and is not working to expand its influence and its sway. So when the bar rears up to defend judicial independence, often judges who exercise or overextend their sweeping powers, we cannot know who in the bar is moved to defend judges out of a neutral sense of public interest, who is making room for doctrines that judges promote and that they approve, and who in that group is aggrandizing the power of the legal profession generally to operate and to promote its agenda without the kind of bare-knuckled criticism that prevails everywhere else in our culture. To discuss these subjects and many others, we have, as Dean has pointed out, a very distinguished panel. We're going to hear very briefly from, from each of the four so you can get acquainted generally with their views, and then uh, we're going to uh, I'll, I'll pose a bunch of questions, and if we have time, we always do, there'll be some questions from the floor. Our first speaker, and I'll introduce all four, and then we'll just hear them very briefly in a seriatim, is uh, Danny Boggs uh, of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, he is a Kentuckian who attended Harvard and uh, the University of Chicago Law School. Um, he uh, returned to Kentucky after school and was legal counsel to the governor, among a number of other uh, distinguished uh, positions in state government. Um, he came to Washington. He was assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States uh, and uh, other jobs. And then, after an interlude in private practice, returned to serve in the White House Office of Policy Development and as a special assistant to the president. Um, in 1986, he was appointed to the uh, Sixth Circuit. In 2003, he became chief judge. The second judge that we will hear from, uh, Patricia Wald, was uh, educated in my circuit with a law degree from Yale and a clerkship on the Second Circuit. She's had a varied career in practice in the Justice Department, 
in the Neighborhood Legal Services, in the Center for Law and Public and Social Policy. She was appointed to the D.C. Circuit in 1979, became Chief Judge of that court in 1986, retired in 1991, and since then has been intensely active in the ALI and very recently as a judge of the International Criminal Tribunal uh, for the former uh, Yugoslavia. The third judge we will hear from, Carlos Bale, uh, grew up in Los Angeles. He has a BA and a law degree from Stanford. He uh, worked in a firm in uh, San Francisco, had his own firm for 15 years until the governor of California appointed him to the San Francisco Superior Court. In 2003, he was appointed to the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, where he now serves. The um, third speaker, Timothy Dyke, is a circuit judge on the federal circuit. Uh, he was, uh, took office in the year 2000. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. He was law clerk to Justice Reed, Justice Burton, and Chief Justice Warren. He served as special assistant to Assistant Attorney General Louis Oberdorfer uh, in 1963 to 64. I'm uh, happy to say I sat with Judge Oberdorfer on my court this past Tuesday. Um, and he and Judge Dyke has been adjunct professor at a number of distinguished uh, law schools. So those are the four judges that we will hear from. So we will begin with uh, Judge Fox. Okay. Thank you, Judge Jacobs. Um, I've been asked very briefly, I guess, to give my take on judicial independence, so I will rattle through this. First, I think there are two aspects of judicial independence, and I would call them inner and outer. Inner is what we do as judges. Outer is what people may or may try to do to us. Discussions of judicial independence largely and frequently focus on the second, but I think the first is really the more important to start with. Uh, as one of the things I, I did in my checkered career, I uh, went to Moscow on several occasions teaching Soviet and then Russian judges. And especially in the early days, uh, the, the USSR was still in existence, uh, they spoke about the concept of telephone justice, meaning the party boss would call the judge up and tell them how to rule. And we heard a great deal about this. And finally, one of a very cynical but... Uh, uh, active defense attorney who'd managed to stay active as a defense attorney under the communists said, listen, these guys are talking about telephone justice. He says, that's only for the stupid ones. The smart ones don't need to be called. <laughs> <laughs> and I take from that that whether carrots or sticks are being used upon you or against you, if you internally think that you don't follow the law but you know how this case is supposed to come out, uh, then you are not independent. And that's why I say inner independence is important. To take us another example of that, uh, Professor Mark Tushnet, a, a man of great stature in the academy, uh, had a law review article a number of years ago when he said, how would he act as a judge? And he said, well, my answer is that I would decide what decision in this case is most likely to advance the cause of socialism. And having decided that, I would then write an opinion in the grand style now, to me, that's not judicial independence either. No one has a gun to his head, but he is not getting his ruling from impartial principles, but from an overarching uh, appeal to either personalities or principles other than those of the law. Well, so to me, that's the most important. On the outer part, what can be done to us? Well, obviously, there's force. That's obviously impermissible. We've seen what's happened in other countries. We've been blessedly almost but not entirely free of it. And anything that in fact smacked uh, of force, uh, we had a group uh, uh, in our court uh, petitioning under the title of by any means necessary. Uh, if they had actually meant it, I think that would be a threat to judicial independence. Uh, I don't think they actually meant that name, but that's something that could be. Uh, Hamilton obviously focused a great deal on money and compensation. Uh, as Dennis says, we have uh, Article 3, although I would say that uh, rampant and uncompensated for inflation at some point could become a threat to judicial independence. I don't think it has, but I think it could. And the third is obviously the threat of dismissal in some way. 
Uh, frankly, that threat in the past has been so weak that I don't think any of us uh, are intimidated uh, by that, although as my wife continues to tell me, your tenure love is not for life, it's during good behavior. <laughs> now, there are many other things that are said and done about judges that may be bad ideas. Uh, they may be public policy ideas, uh, but they are not threats to independence, nor is criticism. Uh, I take my text from Churchill, who at one point said that, uh, quote, I do not resent criticism even when occasionally for the sake of emphasis it parts company with reality. Uh, and I think that's what judges have to do. I do think that the phrase independent, independence, may be a little off-putting to people. In my part of the country, if you say, that Zeke, he's real independent, that does not mean he's impartial. It means he is willful and headstrong, and that is not what independence is about. Independence is not uh, uh, an end in itself. It is a means to impartial adjudication. Uh, Hamilton, in a part of uh, Article uh, Federalist 78 that is not as frequently quoted, uh, says, to avoid an arbitrary discretion in the courts, it is indispensable that they should be bound down by strict rules and precedents. And I take from that that we are not independent to exercise an arbitrary discretion. We are independent to be impartial uh, arbiters. Uh, Dennis asked me to be provocative. I will just throw out one more thing. I'll put it on the table as heretical. Uh, we say that judges should never be impeached for their decisions. And, and obviously, in the ordinary run of things, that is true. Uh, but let me just ask the question, at least. Uh, a judge who behaved as Judge Tushnet would have, or a judge who avowedly always ruled for the litigant with the lighter skin, uh, or uh, a judge who would permit an execution on, for treason on the testimony of one witness in the face of the clear constitutional command that there must be two witnesses, uh, would that be worthy of impeachment? Uh, I don't think that we have any judges that go that far, but I think sometimes it is, it is well to, to posit the outer limit case to show why simply wrong decisions uh, are not actionable by positing the heretical notion that it is possible that there be actions that would be actionable. Thank you. Judge Wald. When I first got this invitation, I felt a little bit like Eleanor Clift on the McLaughlin Group. <laughs> <laughs> But I see it's not that way. I'm, uh, in contrast, I'm surrounded by some of my former colleagues. Uh, I, I feel that the threat, threat of independence or the threat of lack of independence to judges is not, quite frankly, so much on the individual level. And let me say a word or two about that. The Founding Fathers, of course, gave us uh, life tenure, uh, good behavior tenure, and they gave us no diminishment of salary. And, and like Judge Boggs, I've been abroad, and it isn't just the telephone justice. In Bulgaria, they shut off all the electricity in the court building when they didn't like the decision. Uh, and there are other variations uh, on that, uh, which we haven't suffered from. But I think it's interesting to look historically, because actually, as Alexander Hamilton, in the more familiar part of the Federalists, recognized, uh, the judiciary probably is, uh, quote, the least dangerous, unquote, branch in terms of the powers it has, uh, no power of the purse, no power of uh, police, uh, et cetera. Um, and I think that uh, historically, if Congress had wanted to do the judges in, and in the very beginnings of our country, they made a few tries at perhaps unwise impeachments, uh, but that died out. That died out. It's been a long time since there was any serious threat of impeachment. The other thing uh, is that under Article I, where it says that Congress defines uh, the inferior tribunals, and I think under Article III can make the regulations and exceptions to appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, uh, those are big powers. And I think Professor Guy in Indiana has written a book uh, which uh, recounts historically uh, how there has come to be a kind of culture of mutual restraint, or at least there has been 
hope it'll continue, culture of mutual restraint between Congress and the courts, that they simply are not going to use those kinds of powers even when they get mad at the courts for particular uh, things they have done. I do think that the, uh, some of the attacks on judges, some of the ad hominem attacks on judges uh, have gotten particularly nasty in the last several years, but I think that may be a uh, mark of the polarization generally of parties and of the kind of political debate that we have had, uh, and the judges have sort of uh, taken some of the brunt of this, and it's something I think we ought to keep our eyes on, see if we can't keep the discourse civil. I mean, it's fine to criticize judges for their reasoning or for their uh, decisions if you disagree with them uh, when it gets particularly nasty and name-calling. Uh, it is just possible, as Professor Guy pointed out in this book, that you know, if you sling enough of that mud around, some of it might actually stick. So I think it behooves us all, whatever side of the issues we are on, to keep an eye on trying to keep uh, this, the discourse civil. My second point, I only have three, is I do agree with uh, Judge Boggs. I think that uh, internal independence is terribly important uh, among judges. The Constitution makes the appointment of judges inevitably somewhat of a political process, nominated by the executive, confirmed by the Senate. Inevitably, uh, all sorts of people get in there uh, and uh, put their two cents in for their own particular reasons. But I think once the judge is on the court, the judge really has to be very careful, very conscientious, I think most are, in looking inward, looking inward as to whether or not when a decision comes up, is this a decision which at all I'm worried about its effect upon the people who appointed me uh, or the people who I tend to be ideologically on the same side, or is something is this something I can really believe comes out of my looking at the law such as it is or even the consequences of the law as best I can account for them? Uh, there is some very interesting research which shows that, quote, the independence of the judge may be not so much a concern about the political ramifications of it upon the uh, judge's original uh, party of appointment as it is peer pressure in the sense that the research shows that if, and then there's a, a growing body of it, that if three judges from a like background sit together, they're very much more apt to render a decision which is very strong and very powerful in terms of the particular viewpoint that they, that they uh, arrive at. If you have one judge from another point of view uh, it's apt to lighten that up, even, they, even though they may come out with the same basic majority decision. It's apt to be done in different terms. It's not apt to be as strong. It's apt to perhaps reflect more that there is a kind of difference of opinion. Here again, that may have some implications for uh, the kind of uh, prolonged periods in which, uh, in some courts, the same judges sit for a very long time. Um, and also, the last point I want to make very briefly is I think there is a difference between independence, and I agree it's an ambiguous term, but maybe we can get into that in the discussion, um, between the independence of individual judges and the independence of the judiciary as an institution. Uh, I think there some of the considerations uh, are different. Admittedly, Congress, uh, under Article I, has the right to create these inferior tribunals to define their jurisdiction. Uh, but I think that Article III, and from what we can tell from much of the debate at the time uh, the Constitution was adopted, the notion was that the courts, the federal courts, would serve as a kind of umpire to make sure that the other two branches did not overstep their particular bounds. And I think there is something... You may have different opinions on it, but at least to some of us, we are concerned where both the executive and the Congress seeks to take away from the courts powers that they have had traditionally, which do affect the rights of individuals. The recent examples, uh, I know it's controversial, but the recent examples would be uh, the removal of habeas corpus and other, uh, and any other, I think that's the words in the Military Tribunal Act, uh, and, and any other type of proceeding in which certain things could be issued in favor of the uh, format that was laid down in that. We also have other 
doctrines, some of them imposed by the courts themselves, like state secrets, which obviously we need a state secrets privilege to a degree to protect uh, truly national security secrets, but in the way it's been interpreted, it has in effect removed judicial review in some cases of any serious program, such as the wiretapping surveillance program. one decision has gone otherwise, but some other decisions have gone the other way, uh, so that the courts have no role in that. So I, that, that's one of the things that I think uh, we judges and others should keep their eye on to make sure that the courts don't get marginalized out of what I think is their true role in the constitu- constitutional structure. Thank you. <clears throat> Um, I was very glad to hear uh, Judge Wald say that we are not here to defend particular attacks on judges being from the Ninth Circuit, as I am. (laughs) (laughs) The term under discussion is judicial independence, and I say let's step back and take a look at it from two different angles. The one we've been talking about up to now is the independence of uh, the judiciary from outside pressure. The electorate has been telling us, I think, over the last few years that there's another type of judicial independence that they're interested in, which is perhaps independence from the judiciary um, in certain matters, such as, uh, <laughs> such as same-sex marriage, and it's spawned a, uh, some uh, criticism over overreaching courts. And as we know from the recent exchanges in the Wall Street Journal, Justice O'Connor has taken a view that this poses a grave threat to judicial uh, independence. She's cited three sources, which I'd like to discuss briefly. One is the state ballot measures, the most uh, unusual of which was jail for judges, which would have stripped immunity not only of judges but of jurors in uh, grand jury proceedings in South Dakota. that went down to a 90-10 defeat, showing the good sense of the good people of South Dakota. Um, the uh, next one was the Colorado uh, retroactivity initiative, which also went down to defeat. And what I thought was a rather modest proposal in Oregon to have appellate court judges have districts for elections on retention elections, which is not a revolutionary idea to us in California since we've had that since 1905. And that went down to defeat. So it doesn't look like the ballot is going to be a big threat to the independence of uh, the judiciary, at least this year. Congressional action, and Judge Wall has made a a mention of a jurisdiction stripping, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, also has not been particularly successful. Um, The um, Inspector General bill of uh, Senators, uh, pardon me, I wish he was Senator, Mr. Sensenbrenner was um, uh, not acted on, and the uh, Pledge of Allegiance uh, jurisdiction stripping wasn't acted on. So um, what it really boils down to, I think Justice O'Connor is a little bit uh, touchy about public criticism of the decisions of the, uh, of the court, and she's picked up some, uh, an ally, which uh, uh, I don't know if was expected or not, but uh, I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal letter column of a few days ago, Judicial independence is under attack not because judges are busy creating new rights. Rather, it is under attack because the rights messaging machine spouts its facile rhetoric so often that activists are now responding with the overreaching measures Justice O'Connor correctly decries. Nan Aaron, president of Alliance for Justice. Um, So uh, what are we left with? Um, as far as a grave threat, the uh, Alabama jurists who uh, uh, took such a, a strong position um, uh, have not survived the Republican primary and are no longer in office. Personal threats, uh, I don't want to, uh, to uh, make a minimum out of what happened in Chicago a few years ago, but we don't seem to have the personal threats that uh, we did in the segregation and desegregation area in the 1960s and 70s, although I saw an item um, 
And I hope it's the kind of person who really intends to do us ill, uh, acts this way. It was an item in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that a lady had sent some home-baked cookies with rat poison to all the members of the uh, the Supreme Court and the Chief of Staff of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and with a letter saying, this is meant to kill you, this is poison, tacked on top of it, right? (laughs) I don't know whether she benefits or doesn't under the sentencing guidelines, but she got 15 years. Now, the, fair, the, the jurisdiction stripping question is, is, is front and center. First of all, I'd like to tell you that this really isn't something new. It's been around since about 1820 when some people tried to get rid of Section 25 of the uh, Federal Judiciary Act of 1789. It went through uh, certain um, mutations in the Reconstruction era, um, and uh, it's not always a conservative construct. Uh, remember the Norris LaGuardia Act, which stripped the federal courts of injunction power in labor disputes and in yellow dog contracts. And uh, we have a series of jurisdiction stripping uh, statutes of recent vintage, which are not all that controversial. EDPA, the uh, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, uh, has one regarding second and successive uh, habeas uh, petitions. And the Immigration Act has one regarding orders of removal for prior convicts. Um, and some are very obscure. Um, we uh, will be dealing with that in some more detail, I imagine. The one that uh, Judge Wald indicates is the one that's uh, front and center and is going to be the subject of some discussion whether the uh, stripping of habeas corpus is a suspension or not under Article One, uh, Section 9. Uh, I am going to talk a little bit about what I consider a real threat to judicial independence, which doesn't have to do with the federal judiciary. It has to do with state-contested elections. Now, a disclaimer. Uh, I was appointed a judge, and within eight days, I was told by the county clerk that I was in a contested election. I didn't have much time to do anything bad or good, but I I was in an election. And I was sitting in San Francisco, city and county of San Francisco, and I was appointed by a Republican governor. I was a registered Republican. I was Catholic, and I was white. And I was married, and it was not a same-sex marriage. <laughs> so my, re-ele- my election was less of an election but a miracle. Uh, <laughs> but, but I won 59 to 41, otherwise I wouldn't be telling about it. But uh, there, there's two types of elections. The, 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 uh, say, the retention election is uh, used throughout the country. Um, and it says yes or no in an appellate court, and I don't have anything particularly bad to say about that. The, uh, it's very rare that one has to spend a lot of money in defending a, a retention election. They're usually not successful, although they were in California and getting three, uh, getting three Supreme Court justices out in, ni- in 1986. And I, don't th- I think that that's a valid exercise of democratic uh, consensus. The contested elections have gotten totally out of hand. My election uh, cost me $100,000, and that's peanuts these days. Uh, the average price of um, the appellate positions in Michigan, according to a study by an organization which always draws a laugh here, which is the ABA, uh, is between $431,000 uh, and $500,000. In Michigan, the price of uh, election has gone from $300,000 up to somewhere around $5 million. And these uh, increases um, have two effects. One, the judge who has to get the money to run the election um, gets it mostly from attorneys, and he sees the attorneys the next day in court. Um, and then I've also been able to observe judges looking over their shoulder before making decisions because of an upcoming election. It's happened in San Francisco with some frequency. So, um, the, uh, and lastly, there, are, there is the, what I call a bureaucratic or administrative nuisance. It's not really a, uh, a limitation on independence, but for instance, um, the recent advisory opinion number 67 of the Judicial Council, which tells judges that they have to make disclosures as to which seminars they go to, uh, some people call them junkets, um, and 
and the, the selection of among the groups that you must make disclosures. You must make disclosures, for instance, when you go to a free, that's a foundation for research of economic and environmental issues uh, in Montana, and you must make one if you go to George Mason, but you don't have to make one if you go to the uh, seminar by the Judicial Division of the ABA. Um, and there's some other ones that we can discuss. But I, overall, I think that the uh, real, the, the grave threats that, that Justice O'Connor was talking about, I don't think are as grave threats as the threats to independence which exist at the state level because of contested elections. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I agree that the, the problem at the state level is a, is a significant one. I'm going to uh, confine my remarks to, to uh, federal uh, independence and uh, uh, look at this a little bit uh, historically. It's, uh, it's a lot easier to address this subject historically uh, since the, uh, the passions uh, have, have cooled, uh, though uh, addressing it in the present uh, is, is obviously important also. Uh, it strikes me that there are, are two kinds of threats to uh, judicial independence. One uh, 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 is uh, the kind of threat that, that results in a case or controversy. And in a sense, in, in that category, the judiciary has the keys to its own prison. It, it, it is able to adjudicate whether the threat to its independence is consistent with the Constitution, with the Compensation Clause, with the life tenure clause with Article 3 itself. And perhaps with some exceptions, uh, most people seem to agree that the judiciary can be the final word uh, on uh, those kinds of issues. And uh, we, we do have court cases uh, considering issues of judicial compensation, of jurisdiction stripping, of the elimination of judgeships as happened in the 1802 uh, Judiciary Act. Uh, uh, cases involving uh, congressional efforts to change the uh, result in, in particular cases that have been adjudicated uh, by the courts uh, to confer uh, inappropriate duties on the judiciary, uh, such as advisory opinions. Uh, and uh, uh, so in, in, in these areas, the, the cases can come to the courts. The courts can resolve them. The Supreme Court uh, is accepted by most people to be the uh, uh, ultimate uh, uh, arbiter uh, of the question. And uh, I don't see those uh, issues as presenting quite the same threat to the judiciary as the kinds of issues that, that can't come before the judiciary, where we have to rely on the goodwill of the executive, of the Congress, the support of the bar and the public to deal with it, and the, and the courts themselves uh, can't address them. And uh, the quintessential example of that, of course, is the FDR uh, court packing plan. That's not adding justices to the Supreme Court is not something that results, uh, I, I would assume, in a case or controversy that can be adjudicated by the courts. Uh, the courts had to rely on the, on the U.S. Senate uh, to uh, uh, support it and, and prevent the court packing plan from being enacted. Uh, another example would be the refusal of the executive branch to enforce judicial decisions. Not much the, the judges can do about that. Uh, and there are uh, historical examples of that. Of course, um, uh, President Jackson's famous remark uh, about Worcester against Georgia, that Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. But there are modern examples of that also. In the Eisenhower administration, for example, there were uh, decrees in... Uh, uh, desegregation cases that the administration simply didn't do anything about in the University of Alabama or one or two other uh, instances and uh, ultimately uh, was forced by public opinion to, uh, to intervene with the uh, paratroopers in, in Little Rock. Uh, that's, a, that's a matter of some concern. Um, restricting uh, uh, the resources that uh, the judiciary has would, would be a, a matter of serious concern that the judiciary itself can't deal with or or uh, refusing to provide uh, physical security uh, for judges, which we see as an issue in, in uh, foreign jurisdictions occasionally. Those are things that the judiciary itself can't do anything about. 
the questioning at, uh, at confirmation hearings of judges where there are efforts to get judges to, to promise to rule in, in particular ways uh, in, in future decision-making. Not, not much other than refusing to answer the question that the judges can do in the, in the course of those, uh, those hearings. So I think, in a way, that uh, you know, there, there are hundreds of pages in Hart and Wexler and some of the issues that, that can come before the judiciary where the threats to judicial independence can be resolved by the judiciary itself. But I think that the, the, the more serious problem is, are the threats uh, where the judiciary can't do anything to protect itself and has to rely on the other parts of the government and the public and the bar to protect it. Thank you. I'd just like to pose a few questions to the panel, uh, most of which uh, kind of bounce off uh, comments that were already made. Uh, as uh, Judge Wald has pointed out, uh, the uh, Military Commission Bill, uh, signed into law last month, strips us of jurisdiction to hear a petition for writ of habeas corpus filed by any alien enemy combatant anywhere in the world. And my question is, what interest do judges have in the scope of our own jurisdiction? Um, is it a problem of judicial independence, or is it just a matter of separation of powers? Anyone? Well, the way, the way you've put it, I guess, harks back to, to my quote about there are things that may be bad policy, uh, but they're not necessarily threats to the independence of judges. I, I think there is uh, an interesting uh, uh, distinction or concomitance between uh, individual judges, which is what I was mostly talking about, and the judiciary, which is what uh, Judge Wald uh, talked about. I certainly I, I would not see uh, something like that uh, case that you just mentioned uh, as being any threat to my independence, which is how, how I handle my cases. Uh, but of course, it also brings into play uh, Judge Dyke's point that the judiciary is the guardian of itself there in the sense that if that is declared unconstitutional, presumably there's litigation about, uh, that protects that aspect of it. Yes. Well, on this question of jurisdiction stripping and taking away the right of habeas corpus, um, we've had a, a situation since 2005 in the Real ID Bill, which has taken away habeas from immigrants and uh, said that the only uh, judicial review that they get is a petition for review following the BIA. Um, I haven't seen any constitutional attacks on that. The, for those of you who are, who are doing this kind of work, the scope of review, the, the, the amount of evidence, the uh, judicial determination under habeas is quite different from a petition for review from the Board of Immigration Appeal, the latter being, I think, more restricted uh, than the former. So the issue of whether uh, stripping habeas from uh, aliens um, is any worse than stripping habeas from uh, illegal combatant detainees uh, is uh, something which will probably come up. I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, amused by the fact that um, no one's brought up the unconstitutionality of the Real ID Act that I know of, but everybody's talking about the unconstitutionality of denying that same right to illegal combatant detainees. They have a different constituency. Can I... <laughs> Well, I think that, I, as someone said initially, you know, may, maybe our terminology isn't perfect when we're talking about independence. Obviously, we're all talking about sometimes different things. Uh, but I do think that, you know, Article Three, uh, which defined the judicial power, uh, implicit in that, and, in, and, and even for the originalists in most of the discussion that went around at the time that the Constitution was adopted, was the notion uh, that the courts would uh, do two things, that the federal judicial power, one, they would act as a sort of umpire in certain situations between the executive and the legislature to make sure the Constitution itself was uh, honored, and secondly, that uh, with the addition of the Bill of Rights, all of the debate that came about that later on, that they would also be a protection uh, for that. The basic constitutional question, uh, you're right, as to who has habeas corpus, uh, whether it extends beyond, uh, beyond citizens, beyond constitutionally, uh, is one 
that has not yet been decided. The Razul case said there was a statutory right under the then, uh, under the statutory uh, articulation of habeas corpus, and that issue uh, may yet have to be decided. But on your last point, I think there is a, a very basic uh, question that bothers a lot of people, certainly, uh, as you know, in Congress, it only passed uh, by one or two votes, whatever it was. The chances are, I would guess, it'll be revisited again. Uh, in a later Congress. Uh, but the Military Commission Act doesn't just take it away from persons who are eligible for deportation or for the, for the aliens in Guantanamo, but for legal residents of the United States who are not citizens. And that does go one step above and beyond anything that's gone before. You could be here for 40 years and as a legal resident have raised your children, have run your store, whatever, and suddenly that you were an enemy combatant and uh, uh, had no habeas corpus rights. So uh, whether or not technically that comes under the rubric of independence, uh, I don't know. You, we could have a word fight. Uh, but I do think it's an uh, issue that ought to concern the judiciary. You know, and my final remark is we could have our salaries. I no longer, I mean, I have a nice pension, but I no longer have a salary. But we could have our salaries to the day we die. Um, and we could uh, be sure that we weren't going to be impeached. But if you were sitting there and really had no jurisdiction to decide anything that was important constitutionally, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether uh, that's where we want to go. Thank you. The uh, one uh, one issue that's been uh, frequently discussed in the context of judicial independence is the nomination and confirmation process, which has been uh, growing uh, in increasingly tough over the last uh, couple of uh, decades. But uh, considering that federal judges get life tenure once that ordeal is over, how can it be said that the process itself has an impact on the, ju on the judicial independence of anybody who is serving? Well, don't, don't you think that in, in situations if, in the Senate uh, hearings, if a judge is asked uh, how he or she would rule in the future in a particular case and is compelled to answer that question, that that can uh, overhang future decision-making in a way that does interfere with independence? Assuming one is compelled to answer that particular well, question. Well, I mean, you, 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 of course you're not you, you can refuse to answer, but you can also uh, not get confirmed. Well, many, many judges have yeah. refused to answer and have generally been confirmed. Yeah. I suppose the opposite side of it is your independence, as he says, is once you're sworn in, you can simply say, sorry, I lied. <laughs> uh, well, but the, uh, that did take place in the Senate, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, and I mean, in, in a sense, you know, Lincoln had the had the right quote here. I think he was talking about, may have been about Chase, but he said, you know, we must have a man who will be sound on the the uh, Greenback clause, but we cannot ask him because if we did, you know, he could not answer, or if he did, we would despise him for it, and, and that's sort of the the. Uh, the uh, dilemma of the nomination process, and to me it gets to that question of, of you know, what's good policy or not, uh, that if they, if they can't shoot you or hit you over the head or cut your salary uh, once you're in office, uh, the fact that they can read back to you your testimony uh, uh, is, is, is not a very much of a threat to my independence, although that may have been I wasn't asked very many tough questions. Uh, I, I think that uh, it, it may not even be such a threat to judicial independence if you get through smoothly and you go on your way, although let's assume most judges and the ones that I know are conscientious, and if they've said something, uh, you know, they tend to, to, to try to stay on the same path uh, hereafter rather than say, bye-bye, I'm on the bench now, and uh, I'm, I'm on my own. But I think the importance of the confirmation process, which has defects, which has defects, but the importance of it is that it gives, or it should give, the people in the Senate, if they used it rightly, if they used it uh, with uh, caution and uh, thought, it gives them a basis for deciding uh, whether or not they want to uh, confirm somebody on the bench, but it also becomes a forum f 
to introduce uh, with television the American public to some of the issues. So just as, as a point, uh, we're talking about other <laughs> countries' experience. It's, it was interesting to me because the European Union now has a, a kind of tenant. They have norms but for the area which they have jurisdiction over. One of their norms in the judicial area is that legislatures should not have nothing to say about, should not have any role in the uh, confirmation of judicial appointments. It ought to be entirely an executive or a commission, et cetera. I think that's wrong. I think actually the confirmation process, although it has been misused, et cetera, but it does serve uh, an important process uh, apart from whether it affects the uh, independence of the judges. We're going to take questions from the floor in a moment. I'm just going to ask one last question of my own. And, and I, I'm sorry. I, I'd like to just take a moment to shoot one bird down. Um, you hear from time to time that the Senate confirmation process is so um, harrowing that um, good people uh, are shooed away or, or scared of becoming federal judges. Uh, I haven't noticed that. What I've noticed is a lot of people uh, trying to get their foot in the door and trying very hard to become federal judges. Uh, Lawyers in the bar in general have a supposed uh, duty to defend judges who are under attack on the theory that judges are prevented by ethics and probably prudence from defending themselves. Is this duty being discharged in your view and is this duty being discharged even handedly? Any takers? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, when judges are attacked on a substantive basis, uh, you have some lawyers who agree and some who don't, just like law reviews. Uh, and I probably the law reviews aren't completely even-handed uh, either. I think that in the, in the instances that are, in my view, real threats, for example, like the South Dakota referendum uh, or something that were to dismiss existing judges, as in Colorado, uh, I think the defenses have been pretty even-handed. Uh, as I say, when it comes to criticism, I, don't, I, I, I originally said that wasn't a threat to independence, so if, if some of my friends are for me and some of my friends are against me, that's just what happens, just like the law reviews or the editorial page of my local paper. I think the bar has, a, has an obligation to when the criticism is very much ad hominem, ad womanum, et cetera. No, there, were, there was a period in the beginning of women judges. I remember seeing the article where uh, an executive, a member of the executive part of the department who was mad at a decision said, well, what, what would you expect of a woman judge? Now, and, I mean, when that kind of thing comes up, yes, I think the bar uh, does have an obligation. And it's to, to a fair degree, and I only read, I don't read the papers all over the United States, read the Eastern Seaboard ones, uh, I think that they have uh, usually taken up that cudgel. And as you say, obviously, if the reasoning is lousy uh, or they think it's lousy, they have every right to, to say that. I, I, can I make yes. one more comment? I, I, I wonder if uh, in in last uh, 10, 20 years the bar itself has, uh, uh, has become less independent than it was uh, as a result of the of the competition for clients. Uh, I, I think in, in terms of the sort of support the judiciary can expect from the bar, uh, I think it was a lot greater 40 years ago than it is now, just because the bar itself has lost independence. Okay. I'll take some questions. A question, uh, you know, seeks to elicit information rather than to give it, usually starts with what, where, or why, and it ends on an uptick like uh, Valley Girl. Yes, sir. Thank you. Do you think that a citizen of a foreign country who has been accused of terrorism against the United States of America should enjoy the same constitutional privileges in a trial that an American citizen does? I'm afraid that's not really on the point, and I'm afraid that's going to be for Congress and the courts, and I believe that Judge Wald has responded to it. It's very provocative, but I'm going to to pass and ask for a question on judicial independence. Yes, sir. I was interested in what Judge Baez said, and I was interested in, 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 the, in the other panel members in terms of uh, uh, re, re, the effect of, of judicial uh, nomination hearings, and particularly, potentially, the effect uh, to some degree, if there's an f- effect, because of you know, if you've been attacked strongly enough by somebody, 
in these hearings to, to any degree? Does that affect what you might do later on? Well, it didn't affect me. <laughs> and I did have a very, a very uh, controversial, uh, as my good friend and colleague, Judge Santel, in the first row will attest to, um, uh, I, I, I think uh, if you have the if you have the skin the tough skin to go through the confirmation hearing, especially if there is controversy, uh, then it's been my experience uh, that it doesn't affect you uh, afterwards. Yeah, my I've I've seen people on my own court as they come on, perhaps a little bit scarred, and that that falls away very very uh, quickly. It seems to me. I I, I will say that. Uh, uh, perhaps, uh, I guess in the Supreme Court, maybe you expect everyone to be controversial, although as it turned out, you know, say Ginsburg, Breyer were not as controversial. But everybody goes in, I think, thinking that, they, they, that, that it's not going to happen to them. So I, I really don't think people are, are discouraged in advance from seeking office. It's, it's almost like that quote from the death penalty cases that the people who end up being the most run over, it's like it's freakish, like being struck by lightning that you end up being designated by the Senate Judiciary Committee as the uh, designated piñata for that uh, for that part of the hearings. Gene, if you've uh, if you've been through a judicial election, a Senate nomination is a walk in the park. <laughs> yes, sir. Does uh, the uh, threat of uh, dividing the uh, Ninth Circuit and other, I, I suppose, other related issues for organizing the judiciary uh, act uh, or, or bespeak a threat to the judiciary? Uh, I have a little bit of experience in that. Um, <laughs> there are judges who are very much for the split, and there are judges who are very much against the split. We talk about it, but it never affects our judicial um, opinions that I'm aware of. Um, it doesn't have any effect on the judges when we're judging cases. We uh, clash in front of Senate Judiciary Committees. We clash on, on the pages of the Federalist publications. Um, but I don't think it has any effect on our judicial independence. I'll take uh, one or two more uh, questions. Yes, sir. I think many years ago, Henry Hart, and you'll correct me somewhat here, will know this article, made some provocative remarks about the removal of jurisdiction from federal courts, particularly with regard to the Bill of Rights. And he posed this question, would, uh, would it be constitutional for the uh, uh, Congress to take away the court's jurisdiction to hear cases involving individual rights? And as I remember, his position was, as long as there were open fora, in this case state courts, to hear those cases, there's no monopoly on the federal courts for hearing these cases. Any comments? Comments? Well, I think that was his position, and it was, uh, 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 um, um, I can't remember his name, it was from Stanford. Uh, Joe, Gerald Gunther wrote a very long article in 1984 about that and came to the conclusion that um, Hart was right and that uh, as long as it was a well drafted jurisdiction stripping bill, it would be found to be constitutional. But that was his opinion. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would. Uh, I hold my fire on the constitutionality of it because I'm familiar with the debate and some of the authorities. I'm not absolutely convinced that how far Congress could go in removing the uh, appellate jurisdiction uh, of, the, uh, of the federal courts. But I think uh, more important is uh, there is still something that I will loosely call the spirit of the Constitution uh, and I think the notion, if you took away review from the federal courts on most of the independent components of the Bill of Rights, uh, whether you want to call it a legal question that judges shouldn't worry about or a, a policy question which all Americans, including judges, should worry about in terms of the uh, spirit of the Constitution, I think it's, uh, it would be a, a very serious question. Okay. I'll take... Uh one more question from the far reaches of, uh, yes, sir? I guess my question is, uh, in the past few years, we've seen what we call the trend of uh, the personalization of the judiciary. We're realizing that judges are not just sort of judges, dispensers of judicial opinions, but they're actually people. And we saw this sort of in the marketing of, of you know, in the, in the Supreme Court confirmation process, where we look not just at Chief Justice 
what movies they watched. So my question is, what, is, what are your thoughts on this, and does this trend of personalization in any way threaten judicial independence? Well, I guess I would say that the, the uh, personalization goes you know, fairly far back uh, in the sense that people like Brandeis and Holmes were very strong personalities. Uh, we heard a lot about Earl Warren uh, uh, at the time. Um, you know, some of it, I think, is just an outgrowth of the personalization of the society. That is, the, the style section of the Washington Post now is maybe more important than the news section, uh, and the, the, the reality TV and all of that. I, again, it's, 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 uh, it's one of those, to me, it's one of those developments that uh, uh, may, be, may be somewhat distressing in individual cases, but I don't think it threatens our independence. It may be, there are many things that are bad ideas that don't threaten our independence. That's the last question. We could go on a long time, but there's another panel. Thank you very much to the members of the panel. The, uh, the round table is going to begin uh, across the way uh, momentarily. Thank you all. <laughs>